Enjoy Friday night dinners at the American German Club. Doors open at 5 p.m. Dinner, dessert, and coffee services are served from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. only. There's a live band, full bar with liquor and wine, including German and domestic beers on tap. $10 for admission and dinner is just $12. Visit AmericanGermanClub.org for more info. Presiding over this, Reverend Strong, you have been a wonderful host. Thank you so much for opening once more Brown Chapel to all the clergy, all the elders and deacons and everyone associated with this church. It is a great honor to be back among you, especially at this moment that is fraught with peril for our country. And Reverend Green, when those bones get up, and when that spirit is breathed into them and they start climbing out of that valley, the first place they go is to register to vote. Lord have mercy. Did you miss her? No, I didn't think so. Happy Monday. It is the beginning of a week in the Maddie Maddie month of March. Well, we did have March 1st on Friday of last week, but I don't really count that. That just was the end of February. February's cheap. You know, you only get 28 days. I always feel like I got cheated when uh, February's over, except uh, during leap year, when leap year makes it 29. But I, I, I just, um, obviously, I have to talk about the president's speech at CPAC. I won't go to CPAC. I haven't gone to CPAC for the last, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I think the last seven years or six years. I have refused to go to CPAC because I really uh, don't like the leadership of the Conservative Political Action Committee. I know everybody's thinking, you don't like Matt Schlapp? No, I don't really like Matt Schlapp. And I certainly didn't like all of the infiltration that was done by members of uh, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. I didn't like the way they treated um, very many of my friends, disinvited them or, you know, marginalized them, people like Pam Geller and Robert Spencer. I just, uh, I just didn't like going to CPAC after a while. Now, I sure wish I'd have been there Saturday, but I did get to watch the entire speech, um, which was, uh, it's fascinating listening to the media saying it was unexpected. It was totally expected. Matt Schlapp had spent almost the entire three days prior to that on television talking about how the president planned on being at CPAC. Um, I expected him to go. There's nothing he likes better than a, a a crowd of people who support him, you know, and and he likes the occasional heckler, so that wouldn't have dissuaded him from going to CPAC, although it didn't appear to be a heckler in the crowd. What was fascinating and the reason that I wish I had been there was I know what happens when President Trump gets on a roll. There's something electric that happens inside of an arena or a hall or whatever the case may be because I've been there and you can't describe it. You can't explain it. You can't even understand it. To be frank, I, I can't I can't figure it out. But something happens to him and then something happens to the people in the audience. And it's it's just like a phenomenon. And I think um uh, my appreciation of that phenomenon grows. It grows because I have never seen anyone withstand the kind of assault that he receives on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. I would say on a daily basis, but it's really every minute of every day that he is attacked relentlessly. And yet he has the most enthusiastic attitude about this country 
of anyone I've ever seen in 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 a position of leadership. Never mind at the most uh, incredibly important office, not just in this country but in the world. Um, I've never seen so anybody look like they were enjoying themselves this much. And I guess that's uh, that's kind of remarkable in so many different ways. And I I know it disturbs a lot of people. Boy, they get all kinds of crazy. If you could have seen the reaction, well, they either didn't react at all and tried to ignore it, or they reacted in a very negative way to the CPAC speech on the uh, networks, on the uh, Alphabet Soup networks and the uh, MSLSD and uh, uh, the Clinton News Network. They were all just not happy, really not happy. And they didn't seem all that enthusiastic on the uh, Fox News Network either. But it's not the media that needs to get fired up. Now, granted, without coverage, none of this matters, right? you got to be able to spread the word. But I have to tell you, I have never seen a team that was better at getting out a speech like that ever, ever. I mean, I remember when the Clinton campaign was taking place in the early 90s. And George Stephanopoulos and Jim Carville... And all of those, uh, you know, creeps, <laughs> there's no other way to describe them. Uh, they had what was called a rapid response team. And whatever comment was made about the president, whatever allegation, whatever accusation was made, they had a rapid response. And mind you, we didn't have the ease of access of an Internet the way we do now. It was in its infancy. What we did have was good old-fashioned newspapers, and then we had... Uh, fax machines i don't even think people use fax machines anymore unless it's like sending a contract back and you don't even have to do that now you can have a signature document right on your computer screen but back in those days we um we would get these faxes from the clinton campaign they'd come in live while you were on the air it was kind of like a wire service and they'd be coming in the minute you heard a story or heard about a story, you would suddenly have a response from the Clinton team. And I remember I was so impressed. I said, you know what? This guy might win. This this creep from Arkansas. I keep using the word creep today because I've decided I'm not going to use worse words. Creep is good enough. Creep gets the message across. I've been using some really slanderous words and I, I decided, you know, it's not necessary. You get it. You know what a creep is. If you were listening to Hillary Clinton in her southern accent, you know what a creep is, right? So I thought that was impressive, the way they responded. But yesterday, I was in my car, in my house, wherever I was during that two-hour CPAC speech that the president gave. The president's team alerted me uh, as to how I could watch it or listen to it. They told me where it was on the network, you know, on the uh, cable stations. It told me to go to a link where I could see it live. They were literally transmitting it. CPAC had a website that was transmitting it, and they kept texting out to anybody who subscribes to any of the uh, Trump information. And since he's got all them followers, i got to figure I'm not the only one subscribing, right? So we were getting these notices, uh, watch me, watch the speech, watch the speech, watch the speech. And you couldn't help but click on, right? 
So no matter where I was, what I was doing, all I had to do was click. And I could be right there at CPAC listening to the speech and more importantly, listening to the crowd. Because that's what energizes this president. It's not that he is delivering soliloquies or monologues. I do that. People like me get out here and we deliver these impassioned statements and we don't know if anybody's even listening. I mean, we know after the fact because we can look at our ratings or we can look at our online traffic. So we can ultimately measure it. But at the very moment, right this second when I'm talking to you, I have no idea who's listening, how many people are listening, how long they'll listen, where they're listening, no idea. The immediacy of speaking to a live audience, and I do that as well, changes everything. And being able to insert yourself into that live audience when you're not really there is magic. It really is. And I had an opportunity to um, partake of that magic on Saturday. Not the whole thing. I, never, I didn't sat. I didn't sat. I didn't sit <laughs> and watch the entire thing. I was not in a position where I could do that. I, had, I know this sounds uh, entirely ludicrous to you, but I actually do have a life, and it goes on even when I'm not here in the studio. And while I know that I need to listen to the speech, I also know that I can listen to it at my convenience later on. Um, but I wanted a little bit of the flavor, the taste of being in it, in the, in the immediate. So I kept clicking on to these various um, methods to hear the speech. And I know people are saying a lot of things about the speech, including members of his own party, about there's two schools of thought. There are those who believe that he just locked up his win in 2020, and there are those who believe he just destroyed the Republican Party's chances in 2020, which is fascinating how he can bring out both of those emotions so easily, how quickly he's able to um, feed red meat to his base and throw, you know, acid on his uh, detractors. It's just fascinating to me. In the same speech, you know, they just hear it completely different. What a gift. And he definitely has the gift. So I did listen to a little bit, but then I took the, op I had the opportunity to listen to it in portions um, over the next 24 hours after he delivered the speech. And I have to tell you, there were some moments in that speech that were absolutely gold. And then there were some moments where you wince. And that's the magic of this president. You don't have to blindly listen. You don't have to blindly follow. But you will find something in every address that he makes to the American people that makes you feel good about America that makes you feel good about your emotional stake in this incredible republic. He knows exactly how, at least for me, I can only speak for myself, but obviously it's not just me. He knows exactly how to rev up my America motor. He knows what it requires, what it takes in this day and age when people are all 
divided and, and nasty and burdened and just unhappy. He knows exactly what to say to make me believe again, to make me think that there's enough people who care about this country and there's a man in the White House who cares about this country that we, sh we have a shot, just a shot. It's a fighting chance at least. I haven't felt that way in a long, long time. He gives me the, the impetus to go another day and to believe in another way. And I know there are some people who just get mad at him and stay mad at him. I'm not one of them. I get mad at him, but I can't stay mad at him. You know how it is when you love somebody? You get mad at him. But you just can't stay mad. I mean, just think about it. Between 2012 the prior presidential election, where we still had the Voting Rights Act, and 2016, when my name was on the ballot, there were fewer voters registered in Georgia than there had been those prior four years. Wow. Think about it, my friends. So we have a calling, a mission. Oh, she's back. I'll tell you. I know one person who's really happy that she's back, and that would be one Donald J. Trump. You know, all I remember during that election when her name was on the ballot was everybody in the Democrat Party saying, well, he said he won't accept the uh, results of the election. Donald Trump is the first person ever to say he won't accept the results of the election. Isn't that fascinating how the only people who don't accept the results of an election turn out to be Hillary and the Democrats? I mean, these people are still trying to win an election that they lost. And if they can't win it, then they're going to, you know, impeach him. Fascinating watching all these committees today. They're subpoenaing everybody. There's, if, you, uh, if you have ever walked down the same street as Donald Trump, you're going to get a subpoena. Now, I'm waiting for my subpoena. I was once shared a stage with him. I, I'm, a, I'm no, I know there's got to be a subpoena on my way. They're going to subpoena Sean Hannity because he said something and they're going to subpoena this one. It's just, um, it's just silly stuff. But part of me, and I'm sure part of President Trump, is actually rooting for them to go down this path because this is such a bad, dangerous road for them. This is the... Um, the worst thing that any party can do is to launch an impeachment with only one party involved. And if you don't believe it's the worst thing, um, I'm surprised that S Secretary Clinton doesn't remember what a bad thing it was for the Republicans when they did that to her husband. He got more and more popular and the people became more and more disenchanted with the Democrats. That is the price that they will pay. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of rooting for them to keep it up. Go ahead, Jerry Nadler. Go ahead, Adam Schiff. Do your thing, you guys. Go for it. You know, it's, you, you guys better start making some noise because right now the only person that's getting any um, positive press from the media is that pompous little twit out of New York. I didn't call her a pompous little twit. I told you I was going to say anything more than creep. That was the Greenpeace co-founder, Patrick Moore, who slammed her. 
saying she was the ultimate hypocrite over living a lifestyle that does not align with her extremist views on climate change. Moore, by the way, is a guy with a Ph.D. in ecology. And uh, she travels around by plane and car. All the things that she attacked in her Green New Deal. I also fly and use AC. Living in the world as it is isn't an argument against working towards a better future, she tweeted. The Green New Deal is about putting a lot of people to work in developing new technologies, building new infrastructure, and getting us 100% renewable energy. Moore fired back and said the world as it is has the option of taking the subway rather than a taxi. Option of Amtrak rather than plane. Option of opening windows rather than AC. You are just a garden variety hypocrite like the others. And you have zero expertise at any of the things you pretend to know. That was not his first time he went after uh, uh, AOC on Twitter. Yep. If you don't come up with the, if you don't like the new Green Deal, she said, come up with your own uh, ambitious on scale proposal. Until then, we're in charge. And you're just shouting from the cheap seats. To which he responded, pompous little twit. You don't have a plan to grow food for 8 billion people without fossil fuels or get the food into the cities. Horses? If fossil fuels were banned, every tree in the world would be cut down for fuel for cooking and heating. You would bring about mass death. And she's also, he's also said, uh, removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Scientifically, this would mean removing all H2O vapor and all CO2, which would mean the eradication of all life on Earth. Brilliant. You know, you can't mess with the real scientists and the ones who have been doing this research for years just because you won an election in the Bronx. Just saying. But the media is fascinated with her, and I hope they stay fascinated with her. Because while they are, they're pushing all of the Democrats um, further to the left. You see, they watch and they see her getting all the attention. And so they're all like, well, okay, we're on board with the Green Deal. Yeah, 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 we're on board with her. We're following her. This 29-year-old, as uh, the scientific community calls her, this 29-year-old pompous little twit. Enjoy Friday night dinners at the American German Club. Doors open at 5 p.m. every Friday night of the year. Dinner, dessert, and coffee services are optional, sir, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. only. There's a live band from 7 to 11 playing ballroom, standards, party music, and German traditional. Full bar with liquor and wine, including German and domestic beers on tap. $10 for admission and dinner is just $12. Visit AmericanGermanClub.org for more information. One of the things that I grow weary of, and I can't seem to get us through to some of my friends, um, is when they they immediately um, condemn President Trump when he doesn't do exactly what they want him to do. It's fascinating because I've never seen a president do much of what I want them to do, never mind everything that I want them to do. And I'm speaking of people like my friend Ann Coulter, people like my friend Perry, who they, they spend all this time 
they vacillate between telling me uh, how amazing and great what he's doing is on one hand and then how horrified they are by what he said or what he's doing on the other hand. I, I, I just, I can't live like that. I don't know about the rest of you, but that's really uncomfortable. I'll tell you, last night I watched just the first um, maybe 20 minutes of Life, Liberty, and Levin. Um, and the gentleman who was his guest is the guy who started the walkaway movement that uh, Hobo turned me on to when it, the very first video was put up there by this guy, Brandon uh, Stuck. And he went on to explain what exactly has happened with the walkaway movement because, you know, I, I pretty much figured it, it petered out because we didn't hear much about it. And au contraire, the movement has um, grown. It's not as big as a tea party or anything like that, which is what we tend to compare to. Uh, you know, is it is it uh, going to move and change things the way the tea party did? No, I don't think so. But it was fascinating to hear this man. First of all, you know, he comes right out and he tells Mark Levin, I'm a gay man. I live in New York. I've been a liberal Democrat forever. And I believed that if you were a gay man and not a liberal Democrat, that you were, you know, crazy. And he talks about, he talked about how he went from that position to being a conservative and wanting to see how many others um, were having similar experiences to him. He did the research though. And that was what was so fascinating to me that people get an uneasy feeling in their stomach sometimes. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. In 1988 or 89, around about that period of time, I was starting to get very uncomfortable around my fellow, I was a Democrat at the time, I was starting to get very uncomfortable around my fellow Democrats. And I, I, I can almost bring it home to uh, in the city of Pompano Beach, in the county of Broward, in the state of Florida, okay? This was my first experience seeing how there was a tremendous amount of uh, bigotry inside of the Democrat Party. You know, I had not experienced that in New York. In New York, it's such a, you know, hodgepodge of people that you really can't get away with too much bigotry. You may have it, but you keep it in the house. You don't bring it out. You certainly don't bring it into a, a political uh, environment, into a campaign. It just wouldn't work. They need all constituents. It's not identity politics. It's everybody. You need as many people as possible, even in a state that leans so um, dramatically to the D. So I, I didn't have that experience up there, but I, I started to have it down here and I got very uncomfortable, but I couldn't really put my finger on what it was. I'm telling you now that it was that, but at the time I didn't know. I just knew that like these Democrats were not like the Democrats I grew up with. There was something different. Something was changing in the party. And I guess it was really glaring to me here because I didn't know anybody. I had to go out and meet people. And so I was um, running around in circles, in political circles, and I was meeting these um, Democrats, and then I was meeting a handful of Republicans. There really weren't a lot of Republicans in Broward County when I got here. There still aren't a lot, but there were even uh, fewer. 
They were fewer and far between. And I love, obviously, to talk about politics. So I would talk about politics and I would talk about social issues with all these newfound people. And it was fascinating to me that the only time I was able to get into an intelligent conversation was when I talked to these people who identified themselves as either Republicans or independents. And they would talk about issues. They would, like, talk about, you know, the, the strong mayor versus, you know, uh, a, a city manager. Like, Democrats didn't talk about that. Whatever worked best for the party, that's what they wanted. They didn't care about whether it made sense from the perspective of the town that, ser that it's serving or the constituents that live in that town. No care at all. Just this works for us. We're keeping this. So I got really, you know, uncomfortable with that. But I hung in there and, you know, I, I still believed in this national platform which was definitely not the one that you see today. Um, it was much more varied and, and, and much more um, socially conscious in a different kind of way. In other words, it really seemed not to look down and therefore say they have to take care of minority groups, but rather it welcomed them in in a much more big tent kind of way. So, you know, I, I was struggling, let me put it to you that way, when I got down here with my identity. And then I got on the air and boy, did it, it got, uh, it escalated profoundly because I was put on a station which had a pretty even balance of liberals and conservatives of Democrats and Republicans. Um, and the, all the powerhouses on the station for the most part were these conservatives who had long standing uh, conservative uh, bona fide, you know, they they really were members, you know, they were personal friends with the Bushes. They they just they were in in the Republican Party and very conservative. One of them, uh, my friend Rick Seiderman, was actually so ahead of his time that I can't even uh, when I think about it today, I get kind of like choked up his style of radio was what works best today in terms of conservative radio for me what i find the most enjoyable um his style was very much like donald trump's style that's the only thing i can tell you was that he had a libertarian streak he had a he was socially um kind of liberated that's how i'll put it uh, but he was a conservative, true and true, true principled conservative, uh, believed in the, the three branches of government, believed that there shouldn't be an activist judiciary, believed uh, the same things that basically Donald Trump is bearing out. Whether he believed him when he got there or not, he sure believes him now. So I'm watching all this and I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing in, uh, you know, on this side, on the left? when I can't really argue these points and, and ever win an argument because I'm just trying to get people to emote and to feel, but I'm not really willing to argue the facts of anything. And I began to, you know, definitely have some real second thoughts. You know, I, I, if you read David Mamet's book, you know, Secret Knowledge, I think, you know exactly what I was going through. If you read um, David Horowitz's book, you know what I'm talking about. There have been plenty, if you read the writings of Ronald Reagan, you know what happens when suddenly you realize that the party you're in is not the party you joined, and the party you're in has absolutely nothing to do with the things that are important to you anymore. 
It really doesn't. As a matter of fact, it opposes most of the things that are important to you. Environmental concerns, they say they are about environmental concerns, but then they want open borders. So, you know, you get, you find all these hypocritical aspects and you think to yourself, well, can't do this anymore, so I'm going to become an independent. We all become a non-party affiliate. We all become an independent and we still kind of want the best of both parties and that just doesn't work because there really isn't a best left to the uh, Democrat Party. There's no best. I can't find it. I really look for it and I looked for it in the early 90s and, uh, you know, as history bears out, it was Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia who's now thinking about launching a presidential exploratory committee who was at the time the chairman of the the, the Democrat Party and uh, he was on the air with me and I didn't want to uh, endorse William Jefferson Clinton and I would not endorse Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson, all these people that were running for these various offices or very much in the political environment, I said, no, 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 no. And he said, well, then what kind of Democrat are you? And I realized he was, it was true. I was no kind of Democrat. And that's when I formally left the party. And I've been kind of a, you know, a woman without a party ever since. And that's comforting because it gives me the privilege or the honor or the duty to vote for whoever I think is going to do things in a manner that I believe makes the most sense. Not necessarily feels the best, but this can't be about feeling. If I want to be about feeling, then I would have stayed in the uh, field of psycho psychology or, or social work. You know, then you can do all feeling stuff. But I really like the practical world. And that's what uh, helped me to exit in a very dramatic way, you know, on the air, tearing up my card and all the rest of it. And I have no regrets. I never look back. I never have any desire to affiliate myself. Sometimes I look at some of the things that come out of the mouths of, of, of Democrats, prominent Democrats, and I, I cringe. I really do. This idea that they have hung their hat on, on a woman's right to, to kill a baby, that's it? That's their big issue? And they keep calling it women's health? I don't know, 50% of those babies they're killing are women, are going to grow up to be women if you just let them. I, I don't understand how you call it health. Now, if you want to say that you don't care if somebody uh, has to die in the process, well, then we can have a legitimate debate about that. But, but stop telling me that there's something wrong with me because I oppose that. You know? And that's when I realized that this is, yeah, this is, this is a different time. It really is. And I have to embrace my principles. And that's what I heard this young man, um, Brandon Stuck, I think is his name, last night say that, that he, after a while, looking at all the misrepresentations that the liberal media uh, puts out there over and over and over again, like a, a never-ending drip, drip, drip about, you know, Republicans are bad and Republicans want to ruin the environment and they want to they steal your this. And, they, you know, it's amazing. If you, if you start to investigate it, which he did, you realize that the media just lies. It lies all the time. And you're supposed to be able to get information from them so that you can have some logical thought process. Forget it. You can't do it when the information is faulty. And so he started doing more and more 
in investigating on his own, as do I, and as do most people who listen to this radio program. And what he found was things are not quite what the media says they are, ever. Like, ever. And yet they never learn. No matter how many times they get shown up, no, ha- no matter how many Covington teens, no matter how many Jesse Smollett's, they will continue to inaccurately report news because they are driving a political agenda. And that agenda is to make sure that you have less freedom and that more power gets invested in, in this elitist, uh, bi-coastal group of charlatans. And uh, I don't know, guys. Donald Trump makes me feel like we have a chance to fight it. We have to do the investigations and get all this. We, we do not now have uh, the evidence all, all sorted out and everything to, to, do an, to, to, to do an impeachment. Before you impeach somebody, you have to persuade the American public that it ought to happen. You have to persuade enough of the, oppos- of the opposition party voters or the Trump voters uh, that you're not just trying it's to steal. It's a very high bar. Yeah. It is a very hard bar. You're not just trying to steal the last election, to reverse the results of the last election. We may or may not get there. Uh, but, but, but what we have to do is protect the rule of law. But we're going to try anyway. Now, of course, Jerry Nadler. And, uh, I, you know, if you watched their circus last week in front of the House Oversight Committee, I don't know if you were angry or amused by it. I had a little bit of both emotions. It was an echo, really, of the Kavanaugh hearing and a blatant misuse of the Capitol. Um, Congress set a new low for abuse of power with the testimony of a lawyer who was encouraged to violate his attorney-client privilege. And it shows you the lawless depths to which uh, they're willing to go against this president. It's kind of shameful. Anybody who thinks that uh, Michael Cohen's testimony is is credible is probably should run for office because you're definitely bankrupt. He has a, a record of not only lying to Congress, but of violating all of his ethical duties as a lawyer. That's why he got disbarred. It, he did more than just abuse the president's right rights. You know, his right to have an attorney that doesn't violate his trust. But, but they also um, got confidential documents belonging to the president. And that's a violation of their own rules. It's a, definitely a violation of the president's right and the law. But that's what happened. You have a Democratic-controlled House with a hearing set up through the uh, Clinton Incorporated consigliere, uh, Lanny Davis, who's representing Michael Cohen for free. You know, this is the same Lanny Davis that Judicial Watch uncovered all those emails with. And listen, watching Cohen with the encouragement of the Democrats trampling over the rights of the president this 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 abuse would never have happened without Lanny Davis, without the involvement of Team Clinton. So the woman who said, oh, he'll never accept the election results, has never accepted the election results now, has she? Michael Cohen's a criminal. Michael Cohen's a political prop. Michael Cohen is the furthest thing from a victim. And if they threatened his wife with 30 years in jail... Maybe Michael Cohen should have thought about not placing her in jeopardy when he had her co-sign that fraudulent loan. 